90 Day Fiance knows how to film in an airport and make it unforgettable. The show builds to this moment. Two lovers separated by thousands of miles will finally be in each other's arms. There's no hint of the drama or darkness to come. We aren't yet wondering who is using who in this couple or why are they even together? Nope, right now, it's pure romance. The day is finally here. He's in America. Like, he's called me. (laughs) He landed. (laughs) He's here. (laughs) That's Tanya. She's 29, Venezuelan-American, grew up in Connecticut, and she's big into activism. She's waiting for her boyfriend, Sinjin. He's her age and a bartender from South Africa. She's searching trying to see which door he'll pop out of, looking for something recognizable. His long, wavy red hair, his beaded necklace, and then they lock eyes. Oh, I feel like that's him. That's him. Camel, backpack, and his hair. And his hair. Ooh! Oh, my God. Camel, backpack, and his hair. And of course, they drop their bags and run into each other's arms. Alexis Solosky was there at JFK to see this very encounter. She shadowed Tanya and Sinjin, a couple from season seven of 90 Day Fiance, for a story she wrote for the New York Times. It was so beautiful. I didn't know how it would be because there are all these camera ops there and there's some guy holding this huge boom mic and it all seems very artificial to me. And uh, she and her friends are at one end of the terminal and they've scattered rose petals. I mean, Tanya has to make it as romantic as possible. And then a janitor has come by to try to clean up those rose petals and they're pleading with the janitor. Producers are now trying to get this janitor to sign a release so they can film this shot. And all of a sudden, he's at the other end of the corridor, and he drops his bags, and he sprints towards her, and his long red hair is flowing in the wind, and he is screaming, my sugar, my sexy sugar, and he runs her and, like, picks her up and grabs her, and she's crying, and she has this very... Funny way of crying. She sounds like an owl. She's going, hoo, hoo, hoo. She's hyperventilating. She's sobbing. And there could have been a million cameras on them and it wouldn't have mattered. Like they were just so there in that moment. And there was a producer standing next to me, which is so funny because she's the producer of a reality TV series. And she says, this is just like a movie. It's like a movie or a reality show. If you don't know the premise of 90 Day Fiancé, it's pretty simple. The show follows several couples who are dating from afar. In that season, you had a Nebraskan beekeeper dating a beekeeper she met online from Turkey. Or Mike from Washington State, who believes in aliens, dating a devout Catholic from the Ukraine named Natalie. When the show starts, they're typically waiting for approval of a fiancé visa, commonly referred to as the K-1 visa. Once they get approved and their plane touches down, the clock starts running, and you have 90 days. 
And at the end of those 90 days, you either are married or you are deported. I mean, there's nothing else like that in terms of built-in stakes. It's not life or death, but marriage or deportation is not nothing. So conceptually, it's brilliant. The show is a love story, but it's got a bit of a dark side. I mean, people get into relationships for all kinds of reasons, but the show makes viewers the judge and the jury. We watch wondering, are they really in love? Does he want her money? Why is this older man dating a woman who could be his daughter? Is it a power thing? What do you guys think? The fact that she's only a few years older than you? Yeah, that's the weirdest part about it. I have not met Lita, but I think because she would be this much younger will definitely be interesting. We'll get into this more later, but it's pretty safe to say usually there are two delusions happening at once. Typically, the American is the one desperate to find love. And after striking out stateside, they decide to try their luck abroad. Sometimes it happens organically, like on a trip, they meet and have a whirlwind romance. But a lot of the time, they meet online and both have idealized expectations about their eventual meeting. The show portrays the foreigner in love with the idea of America and a whole new life, as much as they are into their fiancé. That's what I'm saying about a mutual delusion. I don't think either partner is ever playing the game more than the other, if we want to call it a game. They think that the show is about romance, and I think romance is often the secret sauce that keeps people, especially women, watching. But I also think that there is a darker narrative, a darker appeal to the show that some people watching it are very aware of and other people may not be as aware of, which is, I think in some ways it's a show about reaffirming an idea of American exceptionalism in that The people on it are not necessarily exceptional. There's definitely that feeling. That America is the place you want to end up. And you hear it in the ways both partners will talk about the country. Donald Trump make America great. I love it. The secret sauce could be the romance. The tricky tropes, the desperation... Well, let's say desperation, actually. I think it's desperation. How much these people want what is on the other side of the 90 days and what they're willing to do to get it. They'll push through a wedding when they barely know each other. Sometimes they don't even understand each other's languages. What? This is Anna and Marcel, that beekeeper couple I told you about. Marcel doesn't speak English, and Anna can't speak what? Turkish. Monty, Monty. Mountains. No mountains over here. What? Yes. It's Pluto, Pluto, Pluto. The Great Plains. The show is a train wreck, but one we can't stop watching. 90 Days isn't just in the top slot for TLC. It's numbers rival America's Got Talent and Real Housewives. The OG 90 Day Fiance is consistently number one in its time slot among women 25 to 54, which is obviously a huge sweet spot 
for advertisers. I think that people enjoy it because it's the kind of show that makes you feel good about yourself and your relationships because no matter how bad your relationships are, they are very unlikely to be the just nonstop catastrophes that are the relationships on 90 Day Fiance. In this episode, we're going to get into why 90 Days is so compelling as a social experiment. What do these chaotic relationships teach us? And what does the backdrop of the K-1 visa say about the immigrant stories we tell? I'm Mariah Smith. This is Spectacle, an unscripted history of reality TV. This is episode eight, 90 Day Fiance, The Delusion of Love. Let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Something interesting I learned about 90 Days is the work they do in the lead up to filming to figure out storylines for couples. Shadowing the cast and crew, Alexis learned that a crucial part of this prep is called a one-sheet. And that's a piece of paper with a photo of the couple, vital statistics, you know, um, age, nationality, sometimes profession, and a quick origin story, and then a list of conflicts. With some couples, their potential problems are not hard to spot. Maybe they've never met face-to-face. Maybe she's 57 and he's 35. With Tanya and Sinjin, their conflicts weren't as obvious. They fell in love while Tanya was on vacation. She had this crazy story where she had met this guy and he had said, come to South Africa with me. And uh, at the time, she was a bit of a party girl, and she said, okay. And she got to South Africa with him, and she realized she really didn't like this guy. And they were at a bar, had a huge fight, and Sinjin was the handsome bartender. And they lived together in South Africa for months, so it's also not like they've only had a few chats online and they've never met. Like, these were people who had a real relationship prior to applying for the K-1 process. They had had a real life, you know, in real life, IRL relationship. Producers still had a story for them in mind. Tanya is outspoken and independent. She grew up in a matriarchal household. And producers had a hunch that Sinjin might be the jealous type. Maybe the kind of macho guy who has a problem with Tanya speaking up. Alexis saw this when they went to JFK to first go get him. Tanya brought two friends with her to pick him up. 
Producers prodded Sinjin about it. Wouldn't he rather that you just picked him up or were asking questions to him? How do you feel about her friends being there? But as it turned out, it was fine. He was so happy to see her. It didn't matter that she had brought along her best friends. Producers wondered if there's maybe going to be a conflict with Tanya's mom. Sinjin and Tanya were going to live in her backyard, specifically in what they call the she shed. Here's my producer, Joanna. It's what it sounds like. It's a shed and it's painted lilac. So I guess that's why it's called a she shed. And I have no clue what Sinjin was expecting, but leaving New York City, he soon realizes she lives out there, like not in a big city, a small Connecticut town. So this is uh, Colchester. Yeah. So what do you think of it so far? Almost everybody has like American flags. Yeah. <laughs> I have like not even noticed that. Yeah, I think this, this is going to be a super cool place. Can't wait to see this uh, <laughs> shade that you have prepared. He knows they're going to live in a shed, but he seems totally fine with it. Like, maybe he's visualized one of those Airbnb scenarios. You know how people make yurts and Airstreams super cute? Ooh, he is in for a surprise. So this is the place. Welcome home. <laughs> oh, wow. Totally fixed, that. Eh? I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a mess. There's junk everywhere. Paint buckets, they need to put in a sink. There's a lot of work to do to just make it habitable. <laughs> and that's work for Sinjin. Exactly. And she's like, by the way, I want this all done in two days. Oh, I just smell the conflict. It's a little sad that, like, Sinjin doesn't want to spend the first night in the shed because it's, like, not ready. It's not that big of a deal. Like, there's a bed in there at least. We can just push everything off and get on it. I mean, yes, he came all the way to America, but, like, I did so much to make that happen. I did the paperwork. I paid for it all. And then you expected to come to, like, our home already set and ready to go? No. No. Like, that's too much. So from what I understand, Sinjin can't get a job during the 90 days. It's like a stipulation of the visa. So it feels almost a little manipulative on Tanya's part. Like, maybe she never intended to have it done before he got there. Maybe she just wanted to give him, you know, some work to do. And instead of just asking him, she trapped him in a purple shed. (laughs) (laughs) And she's not like, honey, do your thing. No, no, no. She's hovering, micromanaging every move he makes. It gives me anxiety just watching it. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. Literally? Yeah. This is a legit power tool. It's my mom. Baby, listen, I've done this quite a couple of times before in my life. Okay, I've gone through cabinets. You can take a chill. All right, it's my mom's. Don't break it, is all I'm saying. Watching the fights is too real. It's like watching your parents or siblings argue. But even the she shed drama didn't really go anywhere. So producers had to find a new angle. Alexis was on set watching producers scramble. She got to see it firsthand. The so-called new angle ended up being one of the oldest in the book. Is Sinjin ready to grow up? And that narrative was about Tanya being very ready for marriage, being very ready to have a baby. Uh, and Sinjin, they're both the same age, they were both 29 at the time, and Sinjin not being there and not really wanting to know what 
he wanted to do with his life and Tanya saying, you need goals, you need a job. He can't have a work permit, you know, for quite a while after they're married. But nevertheless, she wanted him to be lining things up. She didn't just want him to be, you know, bartending his whole life. And so they had really dug into that. I was curious about their incentive for doing the show. Is it fame? Money? Apparently, going on the show will not make you rich. We don't know exactly how much they make, but Alexis heard low four figures an episode. So that means maybe 15 to 30 grand a season. We're unsure. But what we do know is that the more drama you bring, the more people love to watch you and the more airtime you get on TLC. 90 Day Fiance is essentially a franchise. There's a million spinoffs, like Before the 90 Days, which is what it sounds like, the lead up to the 90 Days. There's The Other Way, where it's 90 days, but the American goes abroad. Fan favorites get their own shows, like The Family Chantal, Darcy and Stacy. There's more, but I'll stop. Watching Sinjin and Tanya, Alexis said the moments felt real. But sometimes, real had to be recreated. When they got to the hotel near Times Square, Sinjin very spontaneously threw her on the bed. And the producers liked that so much that then they had him throw her on the bed like two more times so that they could really get a good shot of it. As watchers, we assume there's faking. But Alexa said she was surprised by how little faking there was. The producers were on the whole not manufacturing situations, as often happens in reality TV. They ask leading questions, absolutely. They pipe quotes, absolutely. They provoke, absolutely, but not fraud. And so it was very interesting to see what story they were trying to shape about this couple, and then conversely, the story that the couple was trying to tell about themselves. And it didn't really... It didn't always line up. For me, what was fascinating was that tension. Alexis ended up rooting for both Tanya and Sinjin. She just wasn't sure they were a match. She'd seen their issues up close. She heard Tanya's doubts. Viewers see these doubts, too. They come up in one episode. She's at a shop trying on wedding dresses, and her friends ask her... So how have things been with Sinjin lately? Um... Things have been good, up and down as well. Like, we had a reading, done a birth chart reading, and it was, like, really compatible and everything. But she was like, is this, like, a soulmate relationship? And Sinjin was like, yeah, I feel like it is. Like, she came and she found me and, like, our souls met. I'm like, I've never thought of you as a soulmate. Keep in mind, she's saying all this while she's wearing a wedding dress. Like, girl, what do you want? Figure it out. They didn't seem 100% on the same page about how they felt about each other or even where they wanted to live. Plus, the clock was running out. They only have three months to marry or Sinjin is back to South Africa. Yet, Alexis said the producers called Tanya and Sinjin a love couple. What do you mean by the producers calling them a love couple? What's the alternative? I asked the producers that if the alternative was a drama couple or a comedy couple or just like a, you know, a dumpster fire couple and they would not commit. They 
said they were all love couples, but I don't think that that's true. Tanya and Sinjin had so many ups and downs, it's hard to tell if they'll make it down the aisle. But so far, their relationship has survived living in a shed. That's something. But soon we'll learn that's nothing in the world of 90 Day Fiancé. After the break, we'll meet a man who has paid to chat with his girlfriend for years, and they've never seen each other, like, not even on FaceTime. Now, a word from our sponsors. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. A lot of the pleasure of this show is the chaos, the terrible communication skills, how blind the couples are to every red flag. I knew my friends, comedians Marcy Jaru and Nicole Byer, felt the same. They co-host the podcast, 90 Day Bay. We're attracted to messiness, drama, uh... Also, maybe it's good for women to see abusive relationships <laughs> <laughs> like in front of them to be like, oh, my God, I have to get out of mine. You know, I, I do think that is a good like morality to take away from it. <laughs> it's like all the stuff you would love about like the bachelor that like gets very boring in the last four weeks of it, of like the drama, the fighting, the what's going on. But then you're like, mm -hmm. I don't want to watch you fall in love. So it's all that stuff. When you don't believe in love and want to watch people pay a lot of money for it. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing these chaotic relationships unfold before our eyes, it's not like a highly produced dating show where people are trying to only show their best. You know, all gorgeous, glowing skin, perfect makeup and gowns. 90 Days is not aspirational. It's video calls from old phones and sweatpants. It's sad apartments. It's seeing couples' stark differences. It's seeing a 54-year-old Trump supporter engaged to a Nigerian man 23 years her junior. When I first saw Michael, I couldn't hold myself back. You know, I just had to run to him because that's my sex in Nigerian, baby. <laughs> It's seeing a single mom come to terms with the fact that her husband is Muslim and will be disowned for marrying her because she's not. It's a man talking to his Brazilian girlfriend for years, but never learning a lick of her language and having to use a translator app to get engaged. One such messy couple was David and Lana. Their story started on Before the 90 Days. It's the spinoff that chronicles the lead-up to the foreign half coming to the U.S. David is 60 years old, lives in Las Vegas, has two cats, and rides a unicycle. He's currently hyper-focused on his dream, which is to retire, sell all of his possessions, and hit the road in an RV with the love of his life, Lana. My girlfriend Lana is from Pavlograd in Ukraine. She is 27 years old. She's beautiful, and actually, I think she's out of my league. 
the Slavic beauty just dazzles me. I was very interested in the Slavic accent ever since watching Bullwinkle cartoon shows with Boris and Natasha. Oh, just like you, darling. Always trying to help others get a little more pain. Hearing Natasha speak just always did something for me, even when I was five years old. Um, creepy. Marcy and Nicole had lots of feelings about David. Oh, boy. David. David, a man who doesn't drink water, only drinks ocean yes. spray. He <laughs> lives in Las Vegas in what seems to be a townhouse, but has pictures of himself with a red Lamborghini. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, truly looks like he lives in a storage unit. It's like not it's, furnished. It doesn't look okay. I mean, okay. it looks like an ocean spray factory. Like, that's where he's living. <laughs> So he's on a paid website where you pay for your interaction. It'd be like, if you logged into Facebook and to access your friends, you have to pay $50. So that's the type of website he's on. These types of websites come up on the show quite a bit. They seem common in Russia, Ukraine, Southeast Asia, and essentially you pay to chat by the minute. David has been talking to Lana this way for seven years. They've never talked on the phone or video chatted, let alone met in real life. But he calls her his girlfriend. I've had many discussions with her about why we can't communicate through some other modern uh, communication method, but she will get angry about it. She's told me she's very shy and it's too overwhelming to her. So I do what I have to to keep Lana happy. I, th I think during the whole time that I've been with Lana, uh, I have spent over $100,000. $100,000. What in the world? We find out David has plans to go to Ukraine to meet Lana face-to-face. -face. We also learn that he's been there multiple times, and each time she never showed up. Essentially, he's been stood up over and over in another country. And he still thinks everything is totally great. Here's David at dinner with his friends. They're like, come on, man. But she doesn't show up. My friends know that I've attempted to meet Lana on three earlier occasions. Each time, things didn't work out. The first time, she did stand me up. Second time, her brother died. Third time, she had a medical issue. She had to go have a, have surgery, and it put her out of commission for three weeks. Oh, day. That doesn't sound like a very good track record. It isn't, but I still am attracted to her, still want to be with her. I'm not ready to give up. You can tell David's friends are having a hard time not just leaning over that table and shaking him. It's painful. At one point, he hires a private investigator to look into Lana, and the PI tells him that the signs are not pointing in his favor. She might be a scammer. There are signs that say, David, stop this. You got, there's mm -hmm. flights that are like mysteriously canceled mm -hmm. on her and, you know, there's, mm -hmm. oh, miscommunications, a brother died, a mother died, a cat died. Mm -hmm. There's so many things. And then people like saying to his face, David, uh -huh. this is not real. A private investigator told him it wasn't real. David will not be swayed by PIs or best friends. 
He feels he knows in his heart that she is real and she wants him. He just needs to go back over there. And so we go to Ukraine with David. The plan is to meet at a train station. And of course, hours and hours go by. No Lana. I'm not seeing her. She's not here. This morning I woke up uh, feeling optimistic. You know, now that I'm actually standing here, anger is setting in. Uh, But we know David by now. Do you think this would make him throw in the towel? No way. The guy can't take no for an answer. And let's be real, that's disturbing. But it does make for quality television. So David can't call her. He doesn't have her number. So he has to go on the website and wait. She's not online. It's, it's almost... It's almost a relief that, that I don't see her online. It gives me hope because that could mean that she's actually in transit to me. After four days in Ukraine, he decides he's going to track her down. She told him the town she lives in. It's like way the hell out, eight hours from the city. He has to rent a car. Everyone says it's dangerous. Like Ukrainians tell him it's dangerous. He gets a flat tire on the way. But finally, he gets to his hotel there and pulls out his computer. I got a message from Lana. Do you still want a meeting for a photo and start a relationship in Visa? Oh, God, yes. Right now, after getting this, I feel very close to Lana. I'm beside myself. I just can't believe that after my disappointment, after sitting there for days not knowing what's going on, and then I get this kind of message. David is not lying when he says he is beside himself. I can see it. And I'm like, what? Me and everyone else watching are like, Lana is clearly a catfish. She is not real. But good old David will not give up. He gets online and he asks her to meet at what looks like a town square. He's standing there in his floor-length leather coat, looking straight out of the Matrix, and she walks up. It's like a mirage. You're squinting. You're like, no, no, it can't be. But as she walks closer... Oh my God, that's her. That is her. You're watching this like, holy shit, Lana is real. (laughs) Oh, Oh, wow. Oh, my God. (laughs) I can't believe it. (laughs) It's hard to watch. He's making weird noises as they hug. Her arms remain firmly at her sides the whole time. It's like he's hugging a rag doll. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, amazing. I don't want to let you go. Oh, God. 
She looks exactly like the pictures. Very pretty, could be a model, blonde, young. They don't speak the same language, so they have to talk through a translator app. Although her body language says she would like to run away as fast as possible, in an interview she says she likes him, that he's handsome. It's very confusing. And it brings up the power dynamics at play in many of these relationships. We've heard their conversations. They are not deep. David is fine being with a woman who is clearly uninterested in him, as long as she's beautiful. And Lana is open to the idea of getting engaged to a man 33 years older than her, who is, by all accounts, pretty strange, as long as she gets paid. Right now, Lana has power. She got him to fly across the world multiple times, but the moment she would touch down in the U.S., would she lose some of that agency? I guess it's interesting because sometimes the power dynamic isn't clear. Like, um, who am I thinking of? Libby and Andre. Just for a quick synopsis, Libby and Andre are from season five. Libby is American. She's pretty independent, and she ends up with Andre, a Romanian guy who came off as chauvinistic and patronizing at times. But that doesn't mean he has the upper hand. Andre is definitely the subordinate in their relationship. He does not work. He stays at home. He generates zero income. But she works, she takes care of the baby, she does everything, yet he thinks he's the head of the household. And also, I think when it comes to the traditional, like the American person having the power of over the person coming here, to every now and then get to watch it flip on them is great. Especially when the person coming from another country says, I don't want to be with you. And they're like, floored. They were like, I thought I was your ticket and now you don't even want your ticket? Like, that's how much you don't like me? Other endings are hardly surprising. David and Lana don't end up getting married. As you can suspect, she kind of ghosts him and things fall apart. But you do wonder what that relationship would have looked like if it worked out. Fans live for these kinds of couples. In a way, watching it, I'm like, oh my God, thank God I am not this delusional. Also, it kind of triggers the amateur private investigator in me. Like, who is this Lana? I thought she told David she doesn't have a phone, but now I see her texting on an iPhone in a cafe. Here's Alexis again. I think on the whole, audiences tend to be less skeptical about couples that have met just by chance in real life in a foreign country than the ones where, you know, a foreign partner has messaged the American online. That's when the sort of Reddit threads really come out in terms of, oh, this person is a scammer, this person is a gold digger. And that seems to be strangely part of the pleasure of the show for many people, is trying to figure out what's fraudulent. That whole idea of scamming that the show puts out there, it's also kind of dangerous. Because this isn't Catfish. This is 90 Day Fiancé, a love story couched in the U.S. immigration process. And that means when you paint foreigners as scammers, you're basically stereotyping immigrants. 
America has a really ugly history around immigration, and this is a show that in some ways reinforces it. Because if you dive into the Reddit threads, the assumption in almost all of the cases is that the immigrant half of the couple is scamming the American in some way, that this love is not necessarily real, that it's about the non-American half of the couple wanting to be American so badly that they will scam the American part of the couple in order to gain citizenship. And honestly, the whole scammer thing is kind of unfair or even untrue. Fraud is not common with the K-1 visa process. The federal government reports denying about 12% of the visas for various reasons, including fraud. Getting a K-1 is an insanely taxing process. So the scammer would have to be a sadist, really. The K-1 visa process actually became much more stringent in the mid-80s, in part because a bunch of people testified to Congress about how people were using um, this process to commit all kinds of marriage fraud, and then later on had to admit that they had completely made those numbers up. I think what's important to know about the K-1 process is that it is long and it's not cheap. So yes, there's 90 days until you get married, but it's not like on the day after you get married, the government like sends you a gift-wrapped green card. That doesn't happen. They do check in. And so if this was all an act, it was going to be an act that you were going to have to put up for at least two years. But it's kind of the instinct of the viewer to distrust the immigrant, assume they're scammers. But watching it, it's a mutual delusion, a delusion of love. We all want love. We all want to wear the rose-colored glasses. Let's say Lana is in it for the money. It's not like David is in it because he has so much in common with her. Or they have the same life goals. Their conversations are barely kindergarten level. Not deep people. I said, hi. She says, hi, hi. I said, hi, honey. I said, "Mm, wow. You know what I usually say when I see her. And she writes, good morning for you. I can't with him. Here's Marcy and Nicole. And also, I think what for me watching it, I'm like, there's a very like patternized thing of men who are with women who are so far out of their league physically. And then they're like, she's trying to use me for money. And it's, I mean, Amphisa said it the most beautiful way. He was like, are you with me because of my money? And she's like, but you're with me because I'm beautiful. You would not be with me if I did not look like this. And I was like, yeah. Yes. That couple she's talking about, that's Anfisa and George. Anfisa is from Russia. She's gorgeous. And she came to the U.S. with the idea that she'd be showered with expensive stuff. So why why do you choose these expensive things and stuff like that? Because I like them. What if I didn't have the ability? Then I wouldn't be sitting here with you now. So you're basically saying that you're just dating me because I can buy you things. Yes. At least she's honest. There are a lot of reasons people get married. Love doesn't necessarily figure into it. 
marriage historically has not been about something for romance. It has been exchange of power, a contractual relationship to maintain safety, sanity, economic power, financial stability. That's Shamira Ibrahim. She wrote about 90 Day Fiancé for Zora. That's Medium's Black storytelling vertical. In the piece, Shamira asks why we are holding immigrants to a totally different standard than we hold ourselves. And so if we can do that while you're in the same country, and that's how it is right now, the idea that we have to go through all of these hoops to prove your affinity to someone because you're an immigrant and you're not an American national, it's kind of obscene. Quote-unquote love couples, like Tanya and Senjin, they're kind of insulated from this level of judgment. Sure, the fans come for them for being ridiculous, like when he lands in the States and Tanya immediately goes to Costa Rica for a month and leaves him with her mom. But they're a love couple. They don't have to jump through the same hoops for fans. And Tanya realized that in some ways. It gave viewers a false sense of right and wrong, of the type of people who are deemed worthy of entering the country. And Tanya is sensitive to that because she's the child of Venezuelan immigrants. Alexis talked to her about it. And one night she was doing a bartending shift. Some producers were there and there was a patron who overheard her talking with the producers, you know, and asked some questions and obviously learned that her fiancé is white and that he is from South Africa, which is not a country that... um, Americans have a lot of negative assumptions about. And he congratulated her on her fiancé being a good immigrant. And her feeling was, they are all good immigrants. That good immigrants are people who fill out all the forms and do everything according to law. And good immigrants are also people who are fleeing violence and oppression and people who are experiencing great economic hardship and just want to make a better life for their families. In case you're wondering, Tanya and Sinjin tied the knot, and more than a year later, they're still together. They're buying Christmas trees, baking pies, and they've landed more screen time. On Discovery's 90 Day Diaries and on the 90 Days spinoff, Happily Ever After, which chronicles life post-nuptials. Maybe they weren't delusional after all. Maybe we're the crazy ones for doubting the old proverb, when you know, you know. Next time on Spectacle. Like a lot of us during quarantine, Elizabeth Nathanson found herself treating some TV shows like dessert, saving episodes for when she needed them most as almost a form of self-care. Well, I guess one show in particular, The Great British Baking Show. And I think it is hard not to recognize that the appeal of that is in its kindness, in how warm and friendly and approachable and seemingly non-controversial the show is. But don't confuse that niceness for weakness. It doesn't mean the show doesn't have stakes. Okay, you got four hours on your marks. Get set, bake. In fact, 
It's one of the most anxiety-producing shows on television. Kind of silhouette really. I can't do it. You can. I can't do it. I can't do the head on. What do you need? I'll help you. I've got to put the head on, but I can't do it. Monty's head. Bakers, you have one minute left. Do it. Oh, oh just put it on, put it on. Come on, Freddie, please stay together. Oh. That's episode nine. You won't want to miss it. Spectacle is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted and co-produced by yours truly. Lead producer Joanna Clay reported and wrote this episode. Jonathan Hirsch and Shara Morris are our executive producers. It was edited by Catherine St. Louis. Our associate producer is Chloe Chobel. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Andrew Epen for his original music. Laura Bullard is our fact checker. And special thanks to Raquel Gates, Vikram Patel, and Shauna Shiro. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spectacle underscore pod. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week. <laughs>